Welcome back to our mini season of Wonderland at Frank. I'm Bridget Antoinette Evans. And I'm Tracy Van Slyke. This time, we're diving back into one of my favorite topics, pop culture fandoms. Yeah, today you get to hear two Frank talks. One from Sean Taylor, writer, scholar, expert on popular geek culture, and a senior fellow at the Pop Culture Collaborative. And the second Frank talk is from our very own Tracy Van Slyke, who's not only my Wonderland co-host, but also the strategy director at the Pop Culture Collaborative. You may remember that Sean and I had a rather spirited and fun conversation in season one, where we were talking about the future of pop culture fandoms. That's the entry point. The pop culture is the entry point, but the love and the humanity is really the receipts from the entry point. So now imagine turning that same passion into social change. You know, because how many sci-fi narratives are about resistance? Or about imagining a different future. Absolutely. Since then, we've been involving our ideas about pop culture fandoms, and we've been starting to test those ideas out. And we've been creating a framework about how to activate fandoms for social change. And that's what you're going to hear us talk about today on this episode. And after you hear our talks, we're going to call up Jeff Yang. He's a cultural critic turned culture trend forecaster and all-around brilliant mind in the pop culture fandom space. But before we hear from Jeff, here are Tracy and Sean at Frank. And just a note, Tracy and Sean delivered these talks separately, but they are very much in conversation with each other, which is why we're going to play highlights of each of them together for you here. Let's listen to how Tracy and Sean each open their talks. By show of hands, who here knows Minecraft? Okay, does anyone in your family play it? Okay. My eight-year-old son plays it. My eight-year-old son plays it alone. He plays it with his friends online. He plays it with his friends in person. He takes a Minecraft coding class. He wears Minecraft clothes. He uh, demanded a Minecraft-themed birthday party. And he reads Minecraft books. At least he's reading. And he um, draws Minecraft comic books. He's a Minecraft fan. How many of you know who Octavia E. Butler is? Right. So I'm a fan. I'm not a fan, but I'm a fan. My fandom allowed me, broke, dyslexic, and abusing the projects of Brooklyn, to even imagine I could go to undergrad and graduate school and magna and summa can laude them both. Right? It's why I never succumbed to my dyslexia, how I taught my grandfather how to read. It's literally why I am in front of you today. We are fans because it brings us joy. We meet other people, we find belonging. And when you marry joy and belonging, you hit a kind of love. And fan love is a special kind of love. It's the type of love that has you calling out of work for a Friday because you want to go to a midnight show of a movie you've already seen but it's better in community. It's driving 100 miles to a fabric store to buy the exact state of orange for your Goku cosplay. (laughs) She's like, fuck yeah. (laughs) It's saving money so you can buy a replica of Anduril, which is Lord of the Rings sword. (laughs) <laughs> See, I love this shit. It's, 
It's legitimately getting a second or a third job so you can save enough money to go to San Diego Comic-Con and ball out. So, San Diego Comic-Con, how many of you know about SDCC? Right, it is the biggest pop culture event in the world, but it's only one lane. Fiscal year 2018, that's how much money it brought in the San Diego area. $147.1 million in less than a week. And 135,000 people showed up. That is all of Gainesville, Florida, <laughs> or all of Orange, California, because the consumer power of fandom is undeniable. But there's untapped power, so how do we move from collective consumption to collective world building across difference? Something I believe that fandom is uniquely suited for. At this point in their talks, Sean and Tracy have each painted a picture of how and why, as fans, we become so passionate about the pop culture we love. Now, listen closely as Tracy asks us to consider what to do with all of that passion. I have worked for 20 years, I've just aged myself, uh, at the intersection of media and movement building. And it was about six years ago that I had the soul-shaking moment of clarity. I was writing the bazillionth press statement in the latest movement at the tail end of a two-year organizing and communications campaign. And I said to myself, dear God, or nameless, benevolent, powerful, surely female being, <laughs> why am I caught in this cycle? What's going on? And it's taken many years where I've realized what was making me so uncomfortable. One, as social change communicators and storytellers, we tell our stories based on what we want people to believe and do. And I know that's like kind of strange to say, because yeah, duh. But I think we're starting at the wrong point. And we're not digging into people's passions and experiences that they are craving. Second, we talk a lot about policies we want. We talk about the problems we've got, about who's to blame but we give little space for actually people to imagine what a new future looks like or to participate in the imagining of what that new world could be. So I went on a year-long quest to imagine what was next for myself. And what I realized is that I wanted to work at the intersection, at the space of mass audience storytelling, strategic narrative shift, and people's passions. And that, is why I am really investing right now in what I call people-powered pop culture change. People-powered pop culture change is where mass audiences become ma mass participators in culture change strategies. Working with artists, technologists, researchers, and more, they are the insight drivers, the playful collaborators, the hardline organizers, and the creative forces within narrative experiences. The result? Culture change does not happen to people, it is also manifested by them. So, I'm working with a lot of people, especially in this room, to explore three main areas. The first is audience research and listening. When Nike made Colin Kaepernick the brand ambassador, they didn't do that out of the goodness of their heart, they were listening to their audiences. And we can do that too in a much better way. As social change communicators and storytellers, we can say, not only how are these beliefs look right now, how do they look right now, because we know that from polling and focus groups, but how did they get created? 
What experiences did people have that got to them to, them to that point? What core ideas are they holding right now that could be barriers to change? Imagine if we had those insights, what storytelling could do? What storytelling could move people to act out against injustice and be more powerful and long-lasting than we have right now? Two, fandoms. Andrew Slack, who is the founder of the Harry Potter Alliance, and Sean Taylor, who's a senior fellow of the Pop Culture Collaborative, contend that fandoms are not only where people are inspired, but where they aspire to something greater. They organize. The amount of impact they have on the entertainment industry means that they're some of the best organizers in the business. They are building really deep community based a lot in joy. They, we say that we want to build community, they do it. They're also remixing and creating new content that are reaching from hundreds to millions of audience members. What if fans were forging bonds across pop culture passions and identities because they believed in a shared world vision based in equity and justice? What if they were using their organizing, creative, and purchasing power to make that vision a reality? When audiences go deeper and deeper, over and over again into a story world, they are exposed to the rules, the values, and the behaviors of that story, right? And they're also helping shape those behaviors with other fans. This is incredibly important, because what if we were working with artists and technologists and organizers to create these immersive story worlds where people are not only exploring why, but embodying how to think and take care of each other despite our differences. Now we're gonna switch back to Sean. Listen as he gives us a deceptively simple formula for how to harness the power of fandoms for social change. I times W plus F equals R. Imagination times will plus focus equals a result. Imagination, if you can invest in a teenage boy in Long John's swinging through New York on scientifically impossible webbing, you can look at somebody and invest in their humanity and their right to have everything they need. Will, you have to have the will to do it because the ideas do no good to sitting in your fucking head. They have to come out, but the will to do it is kind of scary because being the harbinger of change is a scary thing. So you have to refine your vision in your head over and over and over until it becomes irresistible to you that you have to live in that world and you have to have the will to do so. The will is like a dino gathering energy. Once you reach 100%, you have to let it fly. And that's what the focus is. Pick something that you dig. I know, increased representation in writer rooms, whatever it is, pick it and focus and give all your will to it. And the results are gonna suck. Because you're by yourself, right? Big change happens with big amounts of people. And that's what fandom is. A whole bunch of people digging each other, digging on the same thing. But you have a lot of people doing these things, but people are doing it already. We have Harry Potter Alliance, we have you know, 501st Legion, we have FlameCon, Indigenous Comic Con, we have all those things bringing things to the table, but we can do a whole lot more with it, right? So if we have affection for fandoms, let's have affection for each other. 
I call them momentary possibility zones. Things that happen in fandoms all the time. It's you starting a literacy initiative on the library for comic books to help disproportionately impacted students. It's Flash, F-L-A-S-H, fit like a superhero to help diabetic families get back into shape. It's about a kid at Comic-Con in a wheelchair dressed as Captain America wanting to take a picture with every Captain Americas that are there. One guy finds the kid and gathers 25 around him to take the photo so he didn't have to go all the way around. These moments, because we have all this talk about microaggressions but never about microalliances. We never talk about the good things that happen. Sean and Tracy each end their frank talks by encouraging us to focus on the positive aspects of fandoms. Take what you love as a fan. Investigate it. Map it onto your mundane world. See where they converge. See where your values are in alignment. To do this work, you have to engage in the cartography of the fantastic. I'm gonna like encourage you to take your professional judge hat off for a moment and understand that people-powered pop culture change is not what you do, it's also what you're a part of, okay? And so I'm gonna ask you, what's your Minecraft? What's your Wakanda? What's your passion? This is where we start. Thank you very much. The thing that I find so fantastic about these talks is that these are two people who, like, they are sort of powerful, brilliant people in their own right. And then when you put them in the same room together in a conversation, they just light the room on fire and they just go back and forth and they're building on ideas. And whether intentionally or not, they're talking to each other in these talks. So you have Sean, who is a fandom expert, a, f- a, a passionate fan himself in all of these different realms, who's really challenging us to think about the, the future of fandom, the role that fans will play in driving change and really just shifting culture in deep ways. And then you have Tracy, who is so deeply knowledgeable and fascinated, I might say obsessed with this unexplored energy and power that exists inside of fan communities. And so I think I have been hearing Tracy say again and again that she's kind of like the futurist, the person who like is like seeing over the horizon, the advancing whatever idea. And I think that she has held the space since we started working together of saying there's this thing, there's a space of fandoms and you know we should we should kind of be looking we hey guys we should really be digging in here and thankfully the social justice sector is beginning to take note of that and i think that philanthropy is certainly beginning to take note and this talk really offers some some incredible kind of road maps for how we can engage in that and how we should be thinking about entering into the space and funding the space. 
what I think was really hard is trying to talk about something as as exciting as fandoms and like there's sort of these immersive story worlds and the ways that like like people really interacting with content and with each other and the dynamics of it and then putting like an infrastructure lens over it of like how do you how do we activate around this that's so could be so boring like here's this amazing thing and 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 Sean captured it so artfully and the and the emotional terrain that goes with it and I'm like okay so here's this now what's the strategy but I do think the combination of the two talks was really important and I think as the pair opened people's eyes to not only the like why but the potential of how. So, Jeff. Jeff is a journalist, cultural critic, and graphic novelist turned culture trend forecaster. He is also one of the creators of a pop culture collaborative Grant T project that uses pop culture fandoms to understand how pluralist behaviors show up in American society. And so, he has this really amazing analysis and connection to how fandoms, pop culture fandoms, are really emblematic of larger civil society. He really takes, I think, mine and Sean's talk and casts it into this larger societal context, but also especially important as we're thinking about the kinds of things we need to be activating in 2020. I think it's so easy to talk with Jeff. You could say... Um, the role of marshmallows <laughs> in world politics. And he would go with you, and he would end up somewhere quite brilliant and, you know, totally transform the way that you think about politics and marshmallows. So I think that's a real skill and a gift um, that he has and, and that we're really excited for other people to be able to experience. We called up Jeff Yang. Hey. So, Jeff, we're really excited to get your take and response to the two frank talks that you were able to experience. What resonated with you the most? What stuck with you? And what are you intrigued to think more about or dive into? I really loved how the two conversations, the two presentations, complemented one another in talking about how fandom acts and impacts both on a broader social level and on an individual level. It was really powerful and, frankly, kind of emotional for me to hear from Sean how fandom and and the passions around the things he cares about and loves as a fan have helped him overcome personal challenges and serve as kind of a fuel for his personal activism and advocacy. And... Tracy's build on that was to talk about how fandom in a broader sense is in fact a platform for social change, that the very tools we use to embrace affinities, to create content for things we care about could in fact be used to, I mean, figuratively and literally build worlds and change them. I think oftentimes people think of fandoms and pop culture fandoms in particular as 
uh, sort of separate from how we think about social change. And you've talked a lot about how fandoms are representative of larger civil society. And I'd love for you to explain why you think that's so and Mm -hmm. the implications on that for people who are doing social change, but also for people who are creatives working in the entertainment industry. So there are a lot of different ways in which fandom, especially pop culture fandom, and the ways in which our civics are evolving are starting to converge. And some of these are, are pretty operationally basic in some ways. We tend to talk about things and think about things uh, and become excited by things these days because of tropes that are really similar to the way that we see pop culture catch fire, right? You could argue, in fact, that political candidates uh, and the support that we have for them feels more and more like fandom. We take selfies with our political candidates. We create memes about our political candidates. We do flash mobs. (laughs) And I think that speaks a lot to the ways that communication has changed. You know, we've obviously come to a a radically divergent fork in the road where our ability to speak is so mediated by tools that amplify us, right? It's not, I think, a coincidence that Donald Trump, our president, uh, has come to power in no small part because of his fandom, his, his mastery of a, uh, a legion of individuals who follow him on social media, and his pop culture celebrity, if you will, uh, as a former reality TV host. So on that operational level, pop culture fandom and politics and our civics really are becoming more and more congruent. But on another level, when we talk about this more metaphorically, we increasingly are being driven by passion, by participatory passion. When we love things, when we care about things, we're more likely to actually engage with them, to share them, to evangelize them, right? That's something that fandom has always understood. Uh, and I think it's something that politics and organizers and creators of social change have also understood. What they haven't, I think, really done historically is made the connection point that those two kinds of participatory passion draw from the same well, and that the language, the tools, the ideas that feed into one are very powerful when used by the other, especially as we go into 2020, we're going to see more and more uh, fandom tropes and ideas enter into the conversation that is very much shaping the destiny of our nation and our world. Can I ask you, you know, there's so much excitement in the social justice world about the the subject of fandom. Um, And I wonder if you have thoughts about what could go wrong and what could go right. I think that actually Sean, in his presentation, shared an algorithm, if you will, a formula, which I thought was really pertinent here. I times W plus F equals R. Imagination times will plus focus equals a result. But he talked about how the power of fandom relates to uh, variables like imagination and will, right? Uh, This sort of sense of purpose that drives people's sense of the possible. And that power is immense, especially when it's multiplied across a wide range of individuals who share the same goal and affinity. 
right? Even in the context of a fandom, uh, we see people move mountains, resurrect shows, cancel celebrities. <laughs> and perhaps the one that's best known is the Veronica Mars fandom, uh, helping them to essentially crowdfund a continuation of that series, which revived a series that had a huge, again, cult passion. Anytime you have energy, energy can be used to, to build or to burn, right? To, to create or destroy. And I, I think that sometimes people who want to leverage fandom don't think closely about the fact that you can incentivize fans. You can give them carrots, but you can never, ever use sticks against them. You can't coerce fans to do anything. There's no way of punishing quote-unquote fandom that will ever help you as somebody who's trying to, to work with a community. What I think is really interesting is that when you give fans that ability to help define a medium, to be part of the platform, they're no longer just consumers. They're producers, and they expect you treated as such. So what we've seen now is that there was that Veronica Mars movie, and now they're actually rebooting and seeing the series, but fans are not happy. They're seeing characters and situations that are going in directions that are different from the ones they imagined or they hoped for, and the backlash has been significant. It's, it's loud. It's toxic. People are, are talking about death threats. People are talking about being uh, shocked and dismayed to the point that they want to actually get refunds on the crowdfund that they put together to help the show come back to life to begin. That's the reality, right? That's the reality of any kind of participatory environment, but one especially where you are amplifying and enabling people who see that they have a stakehold in the product that you're collaborating in creating. Jeff, what do you think of though, like we've, we've sort of been diving into the fandoms that can move into the more toxic environment, right? What about, what makes a fandom powerful and almost caring of each other and having sort of baked in social justice values, a sort of a pluralist outlook? What are the characteristics of that kind of fandom? Hmm. So when we think about what fandom is about, it began as people who were marginalized, who had an interest or even a relationship with society that made them feel a little bit like outsiders, banding together to create their own subcultures, their own microtribes, where they could feel as if they belonged, where they could gather with people who validated them as opposed to excluded them, where they could pursue the things they cared about in a spirit of common ground where who you are, what you look like, what your background is like mattered less than the common purpose that you actually shared. That's a great ideal. That's something which we, I think, collectively would like to see more broadly in society. And in fandom, that was, ideally speaking, at its core. The problem is that all of those ideas have darker flip sides, right? When you talk about uh, feeling like an outsider and banding together with other outsiders, that very sense of connection can make it harder to bring in new people. It can become exclusive. It can become elitist. It can become hierarchical, right? And we do see that happening with fandoms that kind of go toxic. Beyond that, the idea of shared purpose, of common ground, you know, of, of building a story together, right? That's really empowering when you're talking about creating something that uh, feels expansive and that encourages affinity. But once that becomes crystallized into dogma, into canon, then you often have 
stands to treat that as gospel, right? And anybody who speaks against it is blasphemers. You know, we look at, for instance, Star Wars fandom. You know, the vast diversity that Star Wars fandom has created, even across generations, and certainly on a global basis, across races and ethnicities and cultures, that didn't stop Star Wars fandom from having subsets within it who expressed incredibly toxic backlash simply because the storyline moved in a direction to be more inclusive of people of different races and backgrounds and genders, right? So those two things are always in tension, and I think they exist side by side because they're drawing from the same energy. What modulate that energy to make it more pluralist or more toxic, those are kind of things we're exploring right now. a question. Some of what you described, Jeff, about how a fandom that is formed around kind of really positive motivation can turn and become toxic or the nodes within that fandom can become toxic. Some of that made me think about the ways that fandoms evolve over the course of a political season, particularly when you think about the drumbeat of of the advance towards primary season. So you see, for instance, when people really become passionately associated with and invested in a particular candidate and, and have all the hopes and dreams that that candidate will um, be nominated for president, for instance, and then that, that candidate is not nominated. And there's this moment of real you know, genuine devastation, anger, frustration, et cetera, and then there's this like moment of transition that, that everybody has to go through, where you have to decide how do you transition all of that passion to another candidate. Um, and I'm wondering if there are things that you, we can learn from the ways that that transition happens in other fandom contexts. Like what can we learn from entertainment fandoms about how to better hold the transition? That is a fantastic and incredibly relevant question. <laughs> I am reminded that I shared something on Twitter that I saw that kind of horrified me. A Bernie Sanders supporter shared a poll and asked people to retweet it that asked, what would happen if, as a Bernie supporter, you would do if Bernie decided to endorse Warren? And as of the time when I shared it, it said that just... 20%, one-fifth of respondents said they would vote for her. Another 20% said they would vote for someone else entirely. And 50% said they'd be totally pissed off and would just withdraw from the process. And we saw something similar in 2016, where a significant number of people who supported Bernie Sanders, you know, maybe a fifth is about right, chose to either withdraw from the process entirely or to vote for a candidate other than the one that Bernie Sanders endorsed, that is to say, Hillary Clinton. What we see here is that sometimes the object of a political fandom or pop culture fandom loses control of their followers, their fans, when the perception is that they are essentially giving up the fight, when they're, they're choosing to go in a direction that disappoints fans, and especially when they are ending a narrative early or earlier than they choose to end it. Narratives are promises, right? We expect them to pay off in the end. And if they don't pay off properly, 
if they end too abruptly or in the wrong place, there is absolutely going to be a, a sense of disappointment. But there's a way, I think, of proving against that. There, there absolutely is a way to say, in the politi- political arena, for instance, that you are a vehicle, that you're a bearer of messages. But what's important is the message. Ensure that people who are following you from the very beginning aren't saying, you know, Bernie or bust, Hillary or, or die, right? All, all the people who are wedded to a candidate as opposed to what the candidate stands for and represents, they're the ones who are most likely to be disappointed if that candidate doesn't arrive at the proper conclusion of their narrative. But if you make it clear that it's the larger ideas, the accomplishments and values that a canonical figure is trying to achieve that are important, we can, I think, defray that. We can, we can prevent the narrative from feeling like it doesn't end, even if another character is taking the torch and completing the mission. I'm going to liken that in some ways to Lord of the Rings, right? Where uh, <laughs> the, the perception is throughout that the ring bearer is going to be the one who ultimately does the final deed of destroying the ring. But, you know, ultimately that mission becomes one that Frodo and, and Sam have to accomplish together. That of the final analysis, Frodo is, is a little bit too weak to accomplish his goal. And then finally, out of nowhere, it's like Gollum who kind of jumps out and ends up being tossed into the pit, right? So we never know exactly how these stories are going to end. Uh, we never can assure ourselves that the heroes in our heads, our headcanon heroes, are going to be the ones who accomplish the goal. But ultimately, what's important is that Sauron does not rule the earth. <laughs> That's what I would tell people in 2020. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's why Jeff is the perfect person to talk to. Only he could end our serious conversation about the 2020 presidential election with the Lord of the Rings analogy. Okay, so I want to make sure I'm saying this right, but over and over again, Bridget, you and I have been hearing how... During the 2020 cycle, we actually really need to be investing in expanding the base of a voting electorate, um, not catering to the sort of so-called middle, but to really deeply investing in women of color, young people, young people of color, to holding their voting power, right? And I've been really thinking about how pop culture fandoms are space to do that. There's so many of these communities that come together across their pop culture passions, that they're forming fandoms online and in person and creating their own subcultures. So what would it look like if we were to actively engage with some of these pop culture fandoms and actually work with them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's also, you know, when you think about this idea of the object of fandom or um, that point of passion and what it looks like to focus people in the context of a political season on ideas, right? Like obsession with ideas, passion for ideas, building a fandom around ideas and values versus around a particular personality. 
I was so struck and, and a little terrified by Jeff um, mentioning the Twitter poll around Bernie Sanders. The idea that 50% of people was likely to draw from the process if their particular candidate didn't get the nomination is, is really worrying. And it's an important reminder that part of this deep immersive strategy should focus on shifting people from their fixation on personalities to this broader idea of vision and values and big ideas about who we are and who we want to become as a broad nation. That, to me, feels like a really fascinating opportunity to look at the mechanisms of fandom and the way that people organize and express themselves in relationship to the object of their fandom or obsession and figure out how you center a big idea that people can be passionate about. Yeah. I wonder what it's like to create that object of passion, that shared object of passion around a shared worldview and shared values. Um, And that is why I'm so excited about the role of fandoms in 2020, fueled by passion, by love, by shared hopes, and that shared world vision. That's what could make the biggest difference this year. So, Bridget, what's the big idea we want to take away from this episode? I think that the big idea is that we need to invest in deep understanding of audiences and particularly how we as a field can intentionally create the conditions for pop culture fandoms to drive cultural change. Wonderland at Frank is a production of the Pop Culture Collaborative. Nancy Vitali and Destry Sibley produced the series. Sound engineers include Matt Noble, Mike Gilmore, Eric Elterman, and Colin Ashmead Bobbitt. Our sound designer and engineer is Samantha Gatzik. These episodes were recorded at the Awareness Group Studios in New York City, the Loft Recording Studios in Bronxville, and at WBEZ in Chicago. Special thanks to our friends at Frank, Jade Dozier, and Lauren Rawlings. To listen to other episodes of Wonderland and explore ways to build your own culture change strategies, visit our website at thisiswonderland.us.